Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, I'm John Kennedy, and joining me for this episode of Tape Notes are Hiatus Coyote to talk about how they wrote, recorded, and produced the album Mood Valiant. Oh. Hiatus Coyote are a jazz funk band from Melbourne, Australia, consisting of singer and guitarist Napalm, bassist Paul Bender, keyboardist Simon Marvin, and drummer Perrin Moss. Having all been active members on the Melbourne music scene, each band member found themselves regularly crossing paths, with several ending up living together in a shared house of musicians. But it wasn't until 2010, when Paul saw Nate perform a solo show and suggested a collaboration, that the foundations of the band were formed. Two years later, having recruited Perrin and Simon, the four-piece independently released their debut album, Talk Tomahawk. Capturing the attention of numerous high-profile artists, as well as A&R execs, the band signed to the label Flying Buddha, and the following year re-released the album, including a guest collaboration with rapper Q-Tip on the track Nakamura. This led to a nomination for Best R&B Performance at the 2014 Grammy Awards. Their second record, Choose Your Weapon, arrived in 2015. Full of brain-liquefying synth grooves and agile polyrhythms, the 18-track album broke into the US and Australian charts and saw the band earn their second Grammy nomination. Gaining popularity in the worlds of rap and R&B, their music has since been sampled on tracks from artists including Anderson Pack, Kendrick Lamar, Drake, Beyonce and Jay-Z. Following time spent working on solo projects, with Ney also taking a break due to a cancer diagnosis, in June 2021, the band released their third album, Mood Valiant, on Brainfeeder Records. With many tracks exploring how Ney's recent recovery changed her perspective on life, the album was praised for its emotional richness, paired with the band's usual effortless melodies and all-out liveliness. It reached the top five of the Australian charts and earned the band their third Grammy nomination for the Best Progressive R&B Album. Today, I'm at home in Warden, South London, and I'm joined remotely by Simon, Perrin and Bender from Perrin Studio near Melbourne. And what better way to start our conversation than by hearing something from the record? This is Chivalry Is Not Dead. If I were a leopard slug, I would reach out with the blue rose of owls, wrapping myself around you high up in the treetops. We could get lost in our lust. Ooh, us. If I were a It is Chivalry Is Not Dead by Hiatus Coyote from Mood Valiant. And I'm very pleased to say that I am now connected online with three quarters of Hiatus Coyote. We've got Simon and Bender and Perrin all lined up on a couch in front of me. Um, where are you? We're in um, at the villa in um, Coburg. No, we're in Preston. In Preston. <laughs> Preston. That's where we live. I don't even know what bloody suburb he's in. Nah. He's losing uh, it. We're in my studio, actually. Which is called Found Head Studio, but it's a part of um, a bigger studio called The Villa, which is Bender's place, and um, I've got a room inside the place, and this is it. It looks very hiatus coyote, I must say. You know, it's like you've dressed it 
Um, like you dress some of the videos with various different objects. Mm. Uh, it looks fantastic. So very excited to have you here. I'm very excited to dig deeper into some of the songs from Mood Valiant. And the first one we were going to look at is Rosewater. So I thought maybe if we hear a blast of the master to get an idea of the song and then we can dig deeper. That's fun. Yeah, sure. easy to kind of get lost in the track isn't it and then suddenly you're taken into hiatus coyote land um <laughs> so that's rosewater mm. uh, mood valiant is the album and i think this this album had quite an evolution it went through a few different stages um because various different things happened while you were moving towards recording the album mm-hmm. yeah lots of life up and downs and um definitely like different sessions and different locations and you know trying some songs in various ways and yeah so it was a pretty um you know uh gradual evolution for a lot of the songs and then there were certain tracks that were just sort of very uh spontaneous moments as well mm. yeah yeah and you know we think of hey otis coyote as, as such a live band you know because of the amazing live performances that you put on mm. Is that how you like to create, or is it more individual than that? Is it more individuals tinkering around and coming to the rest of the group, or is it a live jam in the mm. studio? Uh, it's kind of elements of both of those things. It's kind of a track-by-track track basis as well. So a, a bunch of the songs on this record were done with live beds. So we went to a couple of different studios and did some like a week-long session at each one and recorded a bunch of beds for those uh, particular songs and then ended up, you know, there's always elements of production in post. Yeah. I mean, I think probably one of the only songs that we did live was Nakamura, right? I well, you know, Red Room was Red very, Room was live was as well, very so. much just like mm. a take. Some of them, you know, based on a take, but then, you know, you, you spend a bit of time with different overdubs and working in different ways. And um, there's always a bit of a mix, just a track by track thing. Some of them just work. Sometimes you just go for it and it just like it just works mm. in that way. You don't need to do much. Another one, so you know, especially when there's very strong idea or concept or place you're trying to take it that doesn't initially happen, then you've got to do some things to to push it there. Mm. Yeah, sometimes it's multi-track as well. Like it, we, yeah. we used to have a bit more, um, or in the early days in Tomorrow, we had a lot more production-based songs as a producer would, you know, but just sampling ourselves and taking that approach. Then Choose Your Weapon, we tried to have the beds already settled. And out on top of that, yeah, ever since then, it's kind of been a mixture of all the above, you know, depending on what yeah. song we're doing, yeah. And where does Rosewater fit into that? It's a little bit of both. We did try some version of it 
uh, at a studio and bar and it wasn't quite there. We hadn't really fleshed that enough and it wasn't really quite the right sounds or feel achieved yet because it's, you know, very specific thing um, we're trying to get at. Um, mm. And then with Rosewater, because P- Perrin gets very unique drum tones that it's very, um, it can be very hard to get some of the sounds that he's hearing and imagining and that he gets himself with other engineers or even just sort of playing them on a normal kit, you know. Mm. So we ended up sort of kind of making a bit of a bed track with sort of the piano and, and bass kind of parts um, and some like kind of like the bass line was a combination of a hollow body bass and like a this cool kawaii organ sort of foot pedal vibe and then even like a bit of cello, cello. to make this whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I think the one thing we did use from the original session was the piano because it was kind of like sort of a loop thing. So I think that's where that came from. No. Yeah, no, no we, that was we, right redone. I ended up redoing it. No, we ended up redoing it. Yeah, because I think like initially we had, uh, I mean, when I was tracking drums over that song, we um, hadn't approached many songs this way, but um, I did the drums after Bender and Simon had like played their parts over a click and I believe it was just the kawaii, like an, just an organ pass from, or a synth pass, I don't know what, what instrument was, um, either a synth or the same kawaii organ and the piano riff wasn't actually happening in order for me to push and pull as much as possible and then Simon would play over top of me again eventually. Yeah. Um, and we have, actually have that version here if you wanted to hear it. Oh, we do, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah we'd remember love that's to. the... Um, it's just got synth, bass, and and drums, yeah. and this is not the um, the final drum take, but this is like getting into the ballpark. So this is what I end up tracking the drums over. And so it just kind of it didn't have as much going on, and just I think I had a demo of the vocals. Yeah, it's a totally different vibe than what it ended up being, but. Yeah, I, I think it just took a minute for us to get the pocket exactly how we wanted it to be, because I'm kind of playing straight fives over the top of this song, and to get the right swagger, it's, it's quite difficult with that straight part on top. Yeah. Forgot about these little synth tom bits. Yeah. yeah cool. <laughs> But yeah, it's um. I think with the kind of thinking behind this, in a way, was just like you know, New Parent really wanted to workshop this drum idea that um, you know, was quite complex. You know, not just the part, but also the sounds and all that. So it's just like, all right, you know, spend some time with this and spend some time experimenting mm. with something that feels good to to play over. So yeah, it was just kind of a process of of that. Exactly. Because, you know, sometimes you go in, it's just like, you know, you, you go somewhere to some other studio with another engineer and you, like, have this thing, but it's not always a thing immediately. Sometimes you've got to spend a bit of time with it to get it something specific and, and unique. Mm. Um, Especially with this song, because the actual time of it is is complicated. I think initially I was playing it just, like, as a four thing, but Simon was trying to push the five, four, and three to kind of get that technically yeah, actually so was quite yeah yeah there, was, there wasn't there was an earlier kind of concept of an idea that was trying to get like a five over eight or eight over five kind of thing and often you know hiatus tunes will start with something 
project that's more complex than what it ends up being. But I think this know. is this is me and Bender trying to figure out. Yeah, which is five probably over sloppy, eight. But here we go. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's it's. Uh, it took us a minute to figure this out. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty slippery. But basically, you've got the the four pulse and then the the quinnies over the top. <laughs> but that's a good example of us trying to push it further than we probably should. Yeah, and then we ended up using <laughs> that riff idea as a little break part later on in the actual final song, but just made it sixes instead of eights because then just a bar of six, and it's just like oh, it just kind of feels good. Yeah, you know, sometimes right. you do something that's try something weird, and then you like end up being like, let's just do the thing that actually feels nice. But you know, you got to have that time to push it and see if you can make a um, a weird idea feel like a cool song yeah so you know you end up shaving sort of unnecessarily complicated bits off and the initial idea actually came from a thought that i had years and years ago from um seeing a bunch of musicians playing with polyrhythms in time and they introduced me to quintuplets and and odd, odd rhythms and i was trying to figure out a way to make it more accessible and make it feel like it was in four. So I, I thought if I had two fives, I could group them in four, four, and two. So it, it would you'd feel that it was more of a four, four, two thing as opposed to a five and a five thing. And that was what the initial piano part was. Three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, one, two. That's how I was hearing it initially. And I didn't really think too much about putting the four against it but then when we started playing it as a band like this was one of the first rehearsals i think that we had and pez this is the first time we heard it yeah we just started jamming out at the studio I love taking those small fragments of an idea and then fleshing it out into a song and it becomes this beautiful thing that everyone else can contribute to. And it, it's that, that to me is like a really good example of how a highest song can be, you know, born. Yeah. Mm. It's really interesting that, you know, do you, your approach is seeking something unique and special that's different that hasn't been done before necessarily, but also seeking something that feels right when you're playing it that has a nice feeling and mm. but also bearing in mind that you're trying to create a song as well mm. yeah. at the same time mm. that's a, a kind of bit of juggling and it's quite interesting because that's uh, I guess how hiatus creates such a unique sound you know it there's always you know with your records they're always you you're never going to say oh yeah that's a little bit of stevie in there or that's a bit of you know this mm. it's never replication it's always in creation I think yeah, yeah absolutely I think yeah a lot of the time I mean, you know sometimes talking to other musicians and it's something I say to you know younger musicians that will come and talk after a gig or something about the process and like it's most of the time instead of taking a song that's kind of a bit boring and then trying to make it super weird a lot of the time it's trying to take something that feels like a bit challenging or a bit confusing and then trying to make that something that feels really natural and like meaningful and like yeah like a song and um 
you know, there's there's a lot of the processes trying to do something that you can't do yet yeah. um, and that you're a bit crap at for like a while and then you're like, oh, actually maybe that thing that you're trying to do that's excessive and this thing I'm trying to do excessive, if I just kind of modulate a little bit, then it kind of lines up with that thing that you're trying to do and then it starts to get a bit consolidated, you know, mm-hmm. um, and then it starts to feel like a natural musical thing, but it's... A combination of fun and annoying. So, you know, sometimes just think, like, well, I, I can't do this thing, but mm, eventually there'll be some cool can. place that we'll get to through trying to push that. Yeah. And I think just trying to always push is, um, you know, for many creative people, I think that's like, that's the dream really. It's like to try and push to another place that you haven't, you know, um, the potential is there to go anywhere and it's like to push yourself into those areas that sometimes are uncomfortable and then you, you do grow it for it. Like as in like you heard that first recording of Rosewater and now it's like we can all play that very comfortably, that song, but at some point we definitely couldn't. Um, and just keep raising the bar, you know, but you don't want to turn into a prog band, you know. <laughs> I think it was exciting though. I, I remember when we were trying to play the five over four thing and it was an exciting time. We were all working on it and it was a good vibe. And then Swooping Duck had so many songs in five. And then we all, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Five is a new four for yeah. us. The five over four polar rhythm is an, is an inherently fun time, I reckon. It it's is. Something, it's one of those things that once you kind of get accustomed to it, it has such a nice bounce, you know, yeah. nice natural bounce to it. Good old swagger. You know. But yeah, ultimately yeah. it's that thing that, you know, there are lots of bands that try to do technical stuff. In the end, we always try to come back to what's something that actually is a cool song that has like emotional content as well and isn't just about like some silly trickiness mm. so that's that's kind of the balance you know yeah and in one of those rehearsals there we heard nay singing as well and so do you rehearse things as they're kind of coming through and just see where it's going and then then take it away and finesse it and then bring it back to be finessed further yeah sometimes yeah. there's like there's different places where it gets finesse you know sometimes it's like a thing gets really worked out in the rehearsal room after just lots of workshopping and people bringing in different ideas and then trying different stuff on it and other times it's somewhat finessed or then you try to do some recording thing and then it gets finessed as a production because there's definitely occasionally songs where it's just like we finish recording and producing the song and it's like how do we play this song like now we literally have to kind of go learn how to like play it as a group with all the different things that we did you know because you know obviously we don't really restrict ourselves to the recording being just the the instruments that we play live yeah separate thing yeah and then you got to kind of like figure out some way to to um embody everything that's in a dance recording into the group and and Mm. it always takes a different shape again Mm. so yeah, yeah there's always different places that you're workshopping it yeah. I mean, I'd say for that song in particular, um, for Rosewater, I remember, I don't know if you heard it on that, but a lot of my drum part came from Nay's vocal, original, they call it yogurt vocals or whatever, just mm-hmm. where she was filling the pulse to determine where I wanted to put a pause after her phrasing and all that stuff. And that really, I mean, for me, especially because that's all I can really focus on is rhythm and, you know, I definitely hear it all like melodic, the drum kit, but um, yeah, it's like, that's my responsibility I guess in the band to try and kind of connect the dots also mm. rhythmically and they definitely helps with that and on that particular song if she hadn't sung the same phrase that she was singing I wouldn't have come up with the part and then vice versa she starts bouncing off me and we all of a sudden we're all bouncing off each other but yeah it's really important for all of us to be there for this kind of particular idea you know and then it's like we have the initial one went to try and record it 
and realized that we couldn't actually play it and then backtrack to what we were talking about before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. So then when you actually, you know, recorded what ended up being the finished version, you know, how did you go about that? And is it possible to hear hear some of that? I mean, what would you lay down first then? I think it did sort of branch off from that original thing that we we played before when I kind of put down a simple bass part and synth part. Mm. And then I think we kind of worked from that. So, you know, Perrin developed a drum thing, went in deeper with that. And I then I put the piano yeah, on top put, of we, that? Piano, yeah, and then I remember so. cello was pretty early on too. Bender came to a different studio and we put some cello on that as well. And I think like that was like, that to me, the cello and the vocals and the piano, cello was filling in all the spots that, because Bender was doing quite a simple bass part throughout and the cello is the kind of thing that really ties a lot of the, the rhythm together, I think. Yeah. Maybe we could hear, you know, those steps then that you undertook as each element comes in. That would be nice. Okay. Here it is. All good. So this was the original bass part that was put in, which should have... Cello on it, yeah. It's all grouped together. Yeah, the cello part's there as well. Plucked cello. I'll listen to that bleed. Yeah. Ah, so the other version's slower than this. I mean, faster than this. So what have we got? We've got drums, keys, bass, and vox or something. Yeah. And then we, um, one of Ney's friends, one of the Colombian friends, played the, um... The gaita flute. Gaita flute. Multi-track some, some flutes. To get that same riff that's on the piano into a different world. Which uh, is pretty dope, but here's, here's uh, just the basics, I guess. Flutes in. This is when the yeah, here's the chorus. You can hear the flutes. You can't really hear the flutes. We've got to remix it. <laughs> so you you playing me the whole mix there? Uh, I've just got the stems here. There's bits and pieces of things. So there's the lead box with the vocal. Chorus, chorus flutes, they're pretty good. So that's a Colombian flute. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. It, it's actually yeah. two flutes. There's a low and a high one, like a male and female flute. Then we multi-tracked it. So it's kind of like there's one that's sort of doing a, a sort of doing that, the kind of almost like the left hand of the of the riff. Oh, I forgot about that guy. There's a little funky boy as well. Yeah, a little funky. There's a couple of synth, different synth parts. With the bass as well. Like that bit. A little bit MJ. There's also a vocoder in there. A Korg VC10. 
which is an incredible synth that we use on a lot of the records because it just blends really well with the lead, with Nay's vocals, mm. and sometimes use it to fatten up certain BV parts as well. It's been on every record so far, yeah? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a bit of a go-to. It's been a very beautiful... It's one of the more most organic, electronic, you know, things. It'll make it breathe with stuff in a cool way. Because it just does weird stuff, and it's very dynamic and... Uh, very sensitive, so you can get some crazy textures going on. I had the outro as well. The outro and piano is beautiful. Well, I mean, I was going to say, mm. and I mean, you spent all this time developing the song and the rhythm, and you have this amazing slinky rhythm going on, and then it cuts out about halfway through. It's almost like a, a second song. Mm. Um, because it breaks down to just piano and voice. Mm. 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 But yeah, I mean, that was definitely a choice that no one was really, um, you know, everyone felt, I think, the same about that. that that's like, that's the time to do it. Mm. Um, the whole piano process at the end was really fun also because I only really had the um, the 301 recording of the keys. So it sounds really awesome. It's the same one you hear in the beginning of the song. Great sound, but it's only a mono. And then... So the process for that is like... With the Space Echo 301, you can run it 100% wet to tape. So you're basically just spitting it onto a quarter-inch tape. Yeah, but a, a, a very wonky quarter-inch tape. Yeah, so it gives it a certain sound. You can hear that in the piano, but yeah, it was a bit crunchy. And when I gave it back to Perrin, he had to work it pretty hard to get it. Well, just a, for the end part, because I felt spot. like the end part needed to kind of, you know, expand. But there was only one mono track, so that was really fun, but also kind of... Uh, a bit hard because it had that initial attack on it. So this was the the mono one, the quarter inch from the three hundred one. Yeah. But yeah, it has it's just all those those little bits, little dropouts and weird pitch fluctuations. It's all just you know that three hundred one tape echo tape mm. doing its magic, which is a bit gritty and very evocative, you know. Mm. Oh yeah, and then there's a little bit of extra yeah, just processing shot. for stereo width and warmth and stuff as well. Mm. Yeah, that was super fun, just shooting it out into different amplifiers in this room, just trying a bunch of different mics on it. Mm. That's um, definitely one of those things that makes like the Space Echoes definitely one of the best studio pieces for so many things. Mm. Not just as an effect, but just to be able to spit it on, grab that single delay and then line it back up with the original signal and just use that as the sound. It's just like a, putting on a tape machine that is inherently, you know, and those things are always a bit funny. It's always different, like the tape's always a bit different, the machine itself is always a bit different and you just get these weird little fluctuations and unique little tape artifacts and stuff that just makes it it's just really interesting and it's easy really quick because it's an endless loop so you can just grab it chuck quick it you don't tape. have to worry about rewinding you know any of that stuff you've also got three heads to choose from so you, yeah, generally the machines tone. will have three different kind of sounding heads which is also another plus mm. yeah definitely a studio favorite for us i think mm. really interesting and and then you, what you, you would use that and then 
you put it into your digital domain and then play around with it further. Yeah, yeah. Well, the potential is everything after yeah. that. It's just like another, but it's just got that beautiful tape sound, which is pretty unbeatable for certain situations, definitely. Yeah. And you know, not yeah, mm. not like a kind of pristine tape sound, that classic lo-fi tape sound, mm. which is just like you know, you want to make something sound interesting or evoke some warmth, yeah, warmth or you know, memory kind of feeling or something. It's just like. Put it in the time machine, you know. It's a lot of there's a lot of that with our stuff. Is like, how do you take something that sounds pretty normal and just make it sound a bit different, you know? Just not too standard or too clean or too um, lifeless. It's fun to try to process it and take it to a different place emotionally, mm. you know? Yeah. And so, I mean, it's the interesting thing about Rosewater as a track that it has these two parts. And in some ways, when you listen to it, you know, it's a surprise when the beat drops out. Mm. Um, but it has that that kind of live feel that it's as if, you know, we were watching you play and, mm. and it just felt right. You know, let's drop out the drums and, and kind of Nay <laughs> takes over. She gets a chance to, to shine further without the noise that you're all creating behind her. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. you know, it, it's like that spotlight moment. Um, and mm. in terms of Nay's vocal, I mean, through the rehearsals and, and Perrin, you were saying how you, know, you respond to her and then she responds to you mm. and that helps the development of a, of a song. But then does she come in and just sing one take then on, on the bed that you've been describing or the track that you've created or, or is she there doing bits and pieces? Um, I usually mm. record the vocals with Nay for most stuff and yeah, like there's definitely times when like she'll just do the this kind of scratch vocal tape and we'll have heaps of vibe, but we usually go pretty hard because she's a perfectionist, um, you know, and spend a lot of time working on the lead vocal because, you know, it's like so many factors to recording the lead vocal. It's not just whether or not it was in tune or if it was vibing. It's like there's so many ways you can sing a phrase that evokes a certain thing. So spending a bit of, you know, quite a bit of time on that to really try to capture the right energy on the day and and just look at different ways of singing it. And then, um, yeah, and then we usually spend, you know, quite a bit of time like developing interesting backing vocal ideas, which, you know, is like definitely have a very wide range from things that just kind of essentially harmonize with and support the main vocal to counter lines to some very... She's got some really weird sounds that she makes sometimes. <laughs> weird little kind of clicking things and just occasionally we just do something that sounds like a velociraptor or, you know, like um, she gets pretty experimental with her techniques. There's one song that is not on any of the, that hasn't been released yet that I remember she was trying to do this thing where she was literally doing a backing vocal where she had a bunch of water in her mouth, like gargling, like a background vocal. <laughs> And then we'll just play around with like balancing those things or be like, oh, this particular like little chunk of thing should kind of be in a echoey world or that. So we're kind of like producing and experimenting with vocal stuff as we go. You know, she's definitely got a real uh, architecture almost concept with her vocal she has building a pro- stuff. She has a producer mind also. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. So yeah, it can be really fun and, and get super bizarre at times, you know. Yeah. But, you know, there are tracks that we've done that have been heaps more raw, like um, Red Room, for example, was like it was a just a take, you know, and we just got a take, which is, I know she was a bit like, oh, my God, like, we're going to put out that thing that I didn't spend any time finessing that I literally just did in the moment. And it was like, yep, you know, 
Like, yeah, it was like 2am and there's some kind of croakiness, but it ended up being really cool. <laughs> so, you know, it's always a mix. Sometimes you spend ages on a thing and sometimes um, certain stuff just happens and you're like, well, that was sick, so why deny it, you know? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, totally. I'm sure I'll be asking some more questions about how you record an A, but... Um, Shall we play the outro of Rosewater as mm -hmm. a way of finishing off with this song and then we'll move on to one of the other songs that we're going to talk about? No worries. I was going to add also on this song, well, just in general, that you said it sounded like a live band. I think there was one point where it sounded like a produced track and that was actually a really cool moment also, just spitting out. If you hear the, I think the drum track's got piano and the band playing in the background, but it's just literally shooting out like a bass amp in this corner and uh, keys in that corner and then the drums at the back and another amp and they're just trying to get the balance of all those as if Bender was in the bass room next to me and mm. kind of put that bleed back in the track, in the mix. Yeah. Oh, could we hear that? That would be great to be able to hear that. Yeah, I think you could probably hear it in the drums. It might be really subtle. Oh, it doesn't sound like it's there, but... Yeah, it's pretty subtle. <laughs> oh, you can kind of hear the vocal in there, but... Um, yeah, it's interesting. I feel like it, maybe I scratched that idea. I think that was... <laughs> I think it was something I definitely experimented with. But maybe it didn't actually end up on the final mix. It probably caused phase issue or something, and I was like, oh, fuck that. <laughs> but yeah. anyway, like, you know, future me will do that and do it better. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of tangents with um which is, you know, just par for the course. So much experimentation, yeah. And it's mm. hard to even know at the end like what we actually you know. You do not want to see the Google Drive with the <laughs> final mixes. <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> oh my lord. In fact, like, yeah, definitely just our general process of, it's of amazing. producing stuff amongst multiple people is, like, something you don't even want to be part of. It's a yeah. nightmare. <laughs> it's, it's not, nightmare. like, it's not methodical or organized. It's just, like, files flying around back and forth in a million directions. And if and anyone wants to go back and find stuff, oh, yeah, my like God. What, what, which version was that Have on that fun. day? What was that? Yeah, even, even getting the stems that. together for this, which <laughs> makes me think that these aren't even the stems. Like, because I don't know. Is it the final stems? Or I don't is know. It's some other thing. I don't know, but it's, um, yeah, I definitely feel like, uh, you know. Here's the outro. Yeah. Here's the outro. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> So beautiful. That is Rosewater, Hiatus Coyote from the Mood Valiant album. And there are so many questions I still have to ask you. 
that just result from talking about that track. Um, so we're going to take a quick break and we'll move on to the next of the songs that we're going to listen to. And which one do you think we should go for next? All the words or get some? All the words. Yeah. All the words. Okay, so it's all the words next. So the next song we're going to look at from Hiatus Coyote's Mood Valiant album is All the Words We Don't Say. But before we dig into that, I've got some more questions for you. Uh, but one of which is, in my excitement in talking to you, I didn't ask to identify you all individually. So I thought I'd better do this now. So Bender, uh, um, if you speak and tell us what your role is in the band. Uh, I'm Bender. I'm the one who sounds a little bit drunk, even though I'm not. Uh, that's just how I am. <laughs> Um, I play bass and obviously uh, spend lots of time in front of a computer messing around with these noises. Yeah, and Simon. I'm Simon. I have the lowest voice. He does. He's got the, the radio voice. Apparently I have a radio voice. He's also got the nice <laughs> condenser mic in this recording so you can really feel <laughs> and hear all of it. <laughs> I play the instruments... Um, all, them. <laughs> all of the instruments. <laughs> I play keyboards for days. Yep, that's it. Just play the keyboards. <laughs> and Perrin? Um, I play the drums and make sounds also. Yeah. And that seems to be the key thing in a way. You now, you all have those individual roles, but actually you're all doing a lot of different things. I mean, as the conversation yeah. we had around Rosewater... You know, the different elements that came into the song might have stemmed initially from your your designated skill set, but then mm. you're also playing around with all the rest of the equipment. So if, mm. you, know, if you yeah. can, then you just go ahead and do it, it seems. Yeah, we, we definitely dabble into each other's sort of, uh, you know, territories, if you can mm. say it that way. It's like, you know, me and Simon will sometimes do a little percussion thing, a parent will play some guitar or bass or keys ideas, and, like, we all kind of play around on yeah, each other's definitely. different sort of realms. And Bender has also, um, in the last couple of years, picked up the cello, and that's a lot of our stuff. If, yeah, just trying especially to, on tr our future stuff. Trying to integrate that a little bit more, which is fun and challenging, yeah. but, you know, it's a cool new frontier. Mm. Simon's got a picked up a viola too, so Simon's going to start playing violin. Simon's also an excellent whistler, oh. <laughs> a champion whistler. <laughs> Can you give us an example? Oh, God, no. <laughs> on, on just, a little, just a hot little trill, that's all. A little trill. Just a little. I haven't got a great whistle. I, I'm the only one in the band that can actually yeah, whistle. Yeah, no, he's actually just the only one it's who can do it at all. It's not a great whistle. No one else can actually <laughs> best do of, it. Best of all of us. <laughs> best whistler in the band. <laughs> and how did you all come together then? Now, how did Hiatus Coyote form? Oh, God. It was so long ago. I think we've all kind of forgotten... It was almost a decade <laughs> just while ago. It was it was basically it was an amalgamation of the Melbourne music scene at that time. Like there was a house that we were all kind of a part of and living at that was a hub for a lot of musicians that were there most days. We just sort of would be playing music, listening to music, recording music, and this band utilized that space to create. Mm. And it sort of turned into a thing out of that. Yeah, yeah. Time. I was I was definitely like one of those meant to be situations because I moved into the house that Simon was just talking about, but I knew no one there. I just happened to get a drum lesson off a guy that was playing with Simon, and it was my first drum lesson. And I asked him, and he laughed at me when I asked him for a drum lesson. <laughs> Later on, after knowing this guy, I realized like why he laughed. But um, 
Anyway, he was living at Simon's house and I'd just been kicked out of a house at the time and had a drum lesson with him and asked if he knew of anyone, any rooms around. And he said there was one going at that place. I came, went and had an interview with everyone else in the house and then um, I was able to move in there. And yeah, for me, that's where I met Bender. Um, mm. That's where I met Simon and heaps of people that Simon's talking about because I think Simon was already established down here and there was a great scene, but I had no idea about it. Like I had really stepped in, into it yet until I moved into this house. I learned a lot of amazing stuff that I still remember to this day from the musicians that were living there. How um, many people were living in this house then? There was about five people living there, but there was, everyone was playing shows in different bands around town and Melbourne's a pretty vibrant scene. So there was a lot of gigs happening. So most nights people would come back to the house and, you know, you'd get home from a gig at 2am and there'd be 10 people in the living room listening to music, hanging out. And we had a shop front that we converted into a little studio, a recording studio, rehearsal room, and that was being used constantly by different projects That's where we recorded Nakamara. That's mm. where we recorded Nakamara and Talk Tomahawk was done in the house. And mm. It was just one of those houses, you know, you hear those stories all the time where mm. those things pop up all over the world where there was just a point in time where a bunch of musicians gathered together from all over Australia. It was not just Melbourne people, there was people from all over the spot. But mm. at that time, and probably still now, Melbourne was, you know, the hub for music really. So people would learn how to play where they're from and then move to Melbourne to try and make make it basically to be able to play music and because there's just there was so many venues and gigs, so yeah. much stuff going on. Yeah, and and within that house then lots of different styles of music being played as well. So people going mm. in different directions with what they were trying Absolutely. to do. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, man, and it all kind of crossed over. I remember when I moved into the house, I felt like I had pretty good time. And then I moved into that house and I realized I knew nothing <laughs> about it. Um, playing with this guy called Nick Delaney, who was there. I remember having jams with him sometimes. And I felt like, oh, he just made me feel like I was slowing down or speeding up. And I did my head and I just drop the sticks and just be like, what's going on? And he's like, no, just keep doing what you're doing. You know, I'm, I'm just doing some weird number stuff over the top of you. And I remember just the feeling of that, feeling so overwhelmed and just being like, I don't know how to play like this at all. And then slowly, slowly, you know, just kept at it and, yeah, had a lot of inspiration from many people in that house. It's almost as if the house itself ended up being some kind of music college. Oh, it definitely was, yeah. Yeah. That's the best kind of college, you know, is your um, community. It's the best way to learn Mm. through, like, friends and watching, just asking questions and trying, you know, Mm. trying out things that you can't do. The best way to learn, I I think. Mm. Yeah, it was a crazy time. And then it got ripped down and turned into apartments. <laughs> <laughs> and then where did you meet Nay? I met Nay at a solo gig. She was just playing uh, with just a little weird pink nylon string guitar, doing a support slot for someone else. And I basically came up and was just like, we have to be in a band. And she's like, I don't know who you are. Uh, okay, <laughs> weird man. Um, I didn't see her for another year. I was just like, this has got to happen. And mm. my mind was like, these songs are really cool and really odd. She's doing some really crazy shit. So this just sounds like something I really want to sink my teeth into, mm. you know, developing whatever she's doing. And I didn't see her for like another year because she went off on some other adventures. And then when she came back, we reconnected. And I was like, cool. So you ready to do this band yet? And um, I was basically trying to help 
find the right people and we tried a few different like players out um nothing quite clicked and these guys just kind of fell into the vortex and it was like oh no it's definitely these guys and and you know i think the main thing that was obvious straight away when we started playing these songs was like they're both really bringing a thing to it and not just trying to like get through the the chords or get through the form or whatever mm. they were both pushing a unique flavor you know mm. yeah like yeah. i met nade exactly the same time as bender like around that time anyway i think i was playing a gig and she came and watched it and she disappeared for a year also and at that point the guys that i was playing with that band dispersed and i was doing a a percussion cameo in another friend's band at Nay's old house or Nay's house that she was about to move out of. And I was um, coming downstairs and I saw, recognized Bender, only just recognized the face because I'd seen him around Clark Street where I'd just moved in about two weeks before that. And I saw Nay and then I picked up a drum and played along with a song that they were playing together, Haunting the Ancient Beautiful Shit. A song that we still actually haven't recorded, which at actually mm. at some point we will. Mm. But the thing is, it's this really complex piece that they wrote like a very long time ago, and he was, was just playing along and like he knew what was going on. I'm like this guy really is acting like he knows what's going on, which is pretty <laughs> damn cool. And uh, but yeah, it was yeah. Like, then Bender that's, asked that's me sick. to come. Bender was like, "Oh, you should come and play some percussion with us. Um, we're having a rehearsal really soon." I'm like, "I would love to. That sounds great." Where are you mm. rehearsing? He's like, "Oh, at this house, Clark Street, and that's where I just moved in." So it was pretty weird for me i'm like i just moved in there like that's actually my house you're rehearsing at my house (laughs) yeah Mm. and i was only playing percussion didn't even say i was playing drums i only went there as a percussionist it was funny wow and i would hear them rehearsing in the in the rehearsal room i'd be running off to a gig and then hear them playing and i'd be like oh that sounds pretty cool that happened for a for a minute that was like a couple of couple yeah, of weeks bit, or months yeah. of you guys were playing together. Yeah, probably a couple of weeks or something. I don't know. Maybe maybe a month or two. But yeah, basically Simon was playing in like 20 different bands at the time. Simon so I just assumed man. that it was not on the table. It was like, I think yeah. me and Bender were doing a wedding gig in Dalesford, which is about an hour, hour and a half north of The of crown Maryland. jewel of Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful spot. And yeah, he said, oh man, I'm looking for a keys player for this band. I don't know what to do. And I said, I'll do it and jumped in the room. And the same day, I actually joined a Latin band called Quarter Street Orchestra. Was that the same day? Same day, man. It was like, it was a day for joining <laughs> joining bands. Who can't help himself. <laughs> uh, so and, good. And, uh, yeah. And then we jumped in the room and then the first rehearsal, it was, it was kind of smiles all around. Oh, yeah. It was a that good was vibe. That was a magical moment, man. That was crazy. It was a yeah. real good vibe. And then from, I think Bender wasn't living at the house. He was living... No, in the I, I was, I was living down <laughs> another place called uh, The Pound, which the is Pound. down in south side of Melbourne with a bunch of other cool musicians. But I basically uh, I ended up moving to Clark Street. <laughs> and there was an interim period. I basically was I was living in my combi van out front of the house. So I basically lived there for like a month before I officially moved. Just like walk out of the van into the kitchen. Hey, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Coffee? You know, just like, yeah. So Good times, um, good times. Yeah. No, and was, then we were just playing every day man couldn't wait to wake up to play together again it was yeah. pretty it was pretty magical just jamming heaps mm. and I think that was originally it was all Nay's music she had a lot she had probably 15 tunes that we were learning and mm. running through and, and then you know Nay was living about 5 minutes down the road 10 minutes down the road mm. and she'd come over 
But the three of us were just there all the time and we were just sort of working on these tunes and then coming up with new ideas and then new concepts and then all of a sudden, you know, we were writing for this band and, and it sort yeah. of, that's when it really sort of started to become the hiatus thing as opposed to, you know, the Nay thing, I think. Mm. Amazing. That's such a great story. I mean, I, as you've been telling it, I've been imagining this this film version of it. And uh, it's, it's got to happen one day. I think it would be a, a pretty amazing thing. Um, yeah, fascinating. And so now let's zoom back to uh, 2021 as it is right now. And um, we're going to look at All the Words We Don't Say, another selection from the Mood Valiant album. So if you were able to play the master, we can oh, yeah. get a sense of the song and then dig into it. a great example of of how you keep things interesting and moving and changing all the time and and that's what you do with this track and i guess we should say um we get to hear nay's guitar playing on that mm. um and we should mention that she also plays guitar in the band Absolutely. as well as singing and um yeah this track just twists and turns and moves all over the place uh, i love the way that you keep the listener guessing with all of your songs because you think you've got into the hook and the groove and then there's a little change and then then you come back mm-hmm. with it and you know you, you love to surprise us and it seems to me from your conversation so far that you love to surprise yourselves that you're constantly looking yeah. for for a change yeah for sure yeah and i think like even for us you know as the maker sometimes you can you know stop things before i don't know i feel like we do a good job of changing up when it should change up but sometimes even for us like we might have heard something along for a long time so we will just add a new thing on you know for a live show and then all of a sudden well that works live let's just keep that in the record and stuff like that because like a lot of these songs we we'd played for played for a while live and tried a bunch of different stuff out and that's like the kind of advantage of um touring and playing new material is that you can kind of bounce off the audience and see what they like and try to capture that energy in the recording also yeah it's worth noting that i think the majority of this record was recorded and, and written for when ago. we were doing it as opposed to like playing them live like this one was conceived around 2016 so it's pretty old and we, mm. we we played it for years before we recorded it it's the same with choose your weapon we played a lot of that material a lot on the road before we actually tracked it yeah. but probably 80 percent of Mood Valiant was written and recorded pretty much the same time. So it's it, it was a real different record for us. Mm, definitely. When you think about it like that. But this song and Chivalry were two on the record that we we had been playing for quite a while on the road and, and uh, we were able to form the, the sounds when we were playing them live. Yeah, or yeah, well, the feeling that we wanted to yeah. capture because it's like the chorus on Chivalry, for instance, went through so many different feels and different 
energies, you know, um, and playing them live, you kind of hear back recordings and you're like, oh man, that one, that felt great, you know, what you're doing there. We used to listen to a lot more live recordings when we are on the road too and kind of listen to how we're playing them, you know, to try and perfect things and um, and it's all to kind of like, what are we trying to convey here or what, like, what are we trying to get people to dance to, what part of the song or what's the general pulse that we want them to feel, mm. you know, regardless of all the other things that are happening, like what Sam was talking about, Rosewater before as well, just having something that is complicated but you can kind of, you can dance to and uh, that's a really good place to test it out is on stage, you know. Mm. If people aren't dancing then it's like, oh, I don't think they get it. And then so the nerds can go in and, and mm. listen to what you're doing and decipher it and then the average person just likes to dance can dance to it too you know and it's, then the- it's funny though good with our gigs because there's a certain kind of hiatus um fan that is just like you might see them in the crowd just staring just having a huge old stare off and then you <laughs> see them after and they're like that was the best show and they just weren't moving the whole time they're just mm. like <laughs> like had some laser like focus yeah so it's like sometimes it's like unsettling is like they into it it was like that was the best thing I was like oh cool like you were just like really in that zone um yeah and do you record all your live shows then i mean how do you work that not, uh, not much not anymore definitely not all of them depends uh, on the tour and yeah yeah i think like i remember one of the tours or like i enjoyed always listening to like instagram versions you know, someone just recording it off the iPhone. And naturally, it doesn't have that compression on it, but you kind of get the sense of what it feels like out there in the crowd and hearing how it's coming out of the speakers as well. That's always a good thing for our engineer mm-hmm. too because we yeah. often talk with our on-the-road engineer to convey certain things that we're trying to convey on instruments. If it's not going out the front the same way as what we're hearing on stage, then, you know, mm-hmm. trying to, like, always bridge that gap too and get so, closer so, and closer. Yeah, usually I just that's a funner thing to listen to anyway you mm. know what i mean in terms of like a single point recording from the crowd with some wild compression on it because sometimes you'll listen to like some As opposed weird, to a desk mix. some weird oh. desk mix or just like completely untreated multi-track and you're like oh this is horrible <laughs> like no no, no sort vibe. of vibe is being conveyed by the way this is been recorded without a mix it and just makes you feel get, so bad and then you hear the same bit of music from someone's like instagram iphone recording and you're like this is sick so it's like <laughs> funny how much that's a thing and it's, i don't know it just kind of demonstrates how much like the actual way something is captured conveys or doesn't mm, convey yeah, a thing absolutely. you know and it's a real trip you know something can sound super weak or super powerful just depending on things like that you know yeah very interesting. So with all the words we don't say, you say this is one of the oldest songs in the album going back to 2016 and that you tried mm. it out live. For the recording that you ended up with on, on Mood Valiant, you know, how, how did you go about recording that? And the, you, all the lessons you might have learned from performing it live back in 2016, you know, when did you start to track it? We started recording it like it was in the first session that we, you know, dedicated to doing this album which is out in, in park, park orchards, orchards yeah. um this guy uh, evan lorden his family place he's got a really awesome studio out there and we went out there with him and, and nick herrera and we uh kicked his family out and yeah stayed there Sorry, for a Mom week and Dad, we're gonna take over for a week <laughs> whatever um and this is one of the ones we got the beds down for it definitely expanded a lot from that initial thing mm. with this one this is definitely one of the tunes where it's really teleporting between worlds almost you know and there's a very strong electronic element to some of the stuff 
in terms of how I wanted to feel and sound. And then also there's a kind of gnarly, you know, rock guitar driven thing to the choruses. And then there's these esoteric sort of open parts like the bridge and the outro and stuff. So there was lots of things that each section needed to do. So did a bunch of takes, like put a thing together and of all these different ways of playing it. And then, yeah, went pretty deep on on the production. Like probably, you know, for me, this is one of those productions that are really, I definitely put a lot of time into things like the, like the intro. I really want to get into that kind of spatial aspect. Cause, so basically the, the, the origin of the song in terms of what the first thing, the first idea was the, the baseline, which is, it was just a little hocketing experiment with me and Simon. So basically the baseline is made up of us alternating each note. So he's playing the downbeat and I'm playing the upbeat. And he had the kind of slow, slightly slow attack on the, um, on the synth. So you can hear one side is the synth and the other side is the bass. The right's the synth, yeah, and left space. Yeah. Yeah, the right is the synth, the JX3P. Yeah, and, and then so originally, because he has got that slow attack in the synth, originally I was actually doing that with like a volume pedal and just like pumping every note, which got really annoying. Like cause it was, <laughs> I was getting shin cramps and then the the pedal started getting real squeaky in the rehearsal room. It was like... <laughs> okay, so this is us sort of running through the idea in 2016. <laughs> just making errors all over the place. So it took us a while to get this feeling good, and I think we still struggle to make it feel really it's good. It's a trip. But it is. It's a bit of a trip to make it, because all of a sudden you're sort of locking in and, and you forget that you're just playing that part. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, so then kind of, you know, created that thing, and then in the actual recording, spent a lot of time, I kind of just had this idea of that it started really tiny, so, you know, it starts very mono, and there's the kind of weird filter and some little crackle kind of stuff and then it's just like adding course, effects and yeah. stuff to kind of make it super reverby and washy and then have it expand and then wrap around your head so it's like hyper stereo super hard panned each note alternating and super dry so that was a really it was a really fun thing to just sort of sculpt and then to sort of i guess it was just this idea of like trying that and then try to make it sound like a kind of whole other instrument because it's like is it a synth is it a bass what is that it's like this kind of like weird serpent instrument you know and sort of mm. slithering around between your ears so that was really that was a really fun thing to work on um yeah but yeah i feel like there's a lot of stuff like that in this track kind of the way you know like an electronic producer spends a lot of time on like the shape of like a kind of build and the drop into a new section and you know and having things hit in a particular way there's a lot of that kind of um finicky automation on this song and then you get to the next section you're like oh this is a whole other thing so that's got to be hit as a thing and it's also going to make sense with the things before and after it um yeah so there's Yeah, and then there was some stuff with um, 
Just trying to make the drums sit in this really cool place as far as, you know, with a slight electronic tinge to them, but still with a kind of natural feel and dynamic and aggression and whatever. There's a little bit of like having other samples on like the hi-hats in the verse and very subtle like little snare samples with it. Are you engineer and producer? I mean, it, it sounds like all three of you are engineers and producers for all of the tracks. Is, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Basically, we're all doing, you know, aspects of engineering. Like on this record, there's a lot of working with other engineers to do tracking yeah, stuff. Yeah, the beds. Because yeah. we kind of want to be like, let's go to a place for like a week or two and, and record a bunch of stuff and we can just focus on playing and kind of at least working with them to get towards a cool sound without having to worry about all the technical stuff. I think that's one of the hardest parts to do by yourself is to actually track mm. instruments live mm -hmm. in a band because if you're wearing that engineering hat, uh, it makes it really tough to, to be running back and forth the whole time and making sure everything's working, you know. So, we, yeah, we, we definitely made that choice on this one and, and the previous records too. We did different sessions with different engineers to yeah. help us with the tracking. Yeah, yeah especially process. if you're doing the whole kind of the approach of, you know, doing a bed together. There's definitely some tracks that's just like you kind of piece it together from the get-go from build it up, but it's nice when you go in to record a, a band track that you know someone's taking care of it. You know, it had, the recording hasn't stopped or that thing isn't just like clipping horrifically after you kind of get the cool take and you're like, oh, that was totally cooked because, <laughs> you know. And also a good point, as I think with a lot of our songs, like is that we have a strong enough concept at the time when we're in the studio working with another engineer that we would think like if we're going to produce this afterwards, like how are we going to do it for, so for this track? There's like there's a couple of different sessions for the same song. Like the outro was... I had a space echo next to me so I could actually hit expand on the reverb mm. with the snare oh, yeah, and just and just and just play like one-handed but that's all I needed to do at the time this kind of stuff that's all that's just me playing with the the verb while I'm playing but that's a different kind of situation I even had oh on Shivery's example it's like different drum setups you know different microphones in different spots mm. so we would, we would actually go you know let's track the first verse second verse do that a bunch of times and then do a whole new setup once we've got it and then do the first chorus, second chorus and then maybe the outro can have a combination between what we've worked with already. We've already got some lines happening and some mics into good gear, you know, and at that point we can kind of start twisting. And I think as we've gotten, we've made more records, um, we've gotten better at even that. Like when we go to a studio, we're like, cool, let's do this song like this is definitely this vibe so we should probably use this engineer he's really good at capturing this kind of stuff and then mm. the rest of it you know what we could do that ourselves let's just go back to the studio and we can just multi-track that so we have those kind of concepts because we know what we know what the end result is before we've even made it if that makes sense because we're thinking about it when coming up with our parts and everything you know yeah if i'm coming up with a drum part i'm thinking about well, I'm not going to smash it because I want it to sound like this, and if I smash it, it won't sound like that. So even when you're rehearsing it, you're playing quite timid and laid back because you eventually want to be quite present, but you don't want it to hurt your ears. So thinking about that when you're coming up with the parts and playing them, we do that quite a lot with our music, yeah. It's interesting also because, you know, it's almost as if, because you know you're going to reapproach it, you're taking some pressure off yourself, so you don't have to, like, go in and do the take, this doesn't have to be the one. Yeah, that's true. Um, that's so true. you're kind of constantly 
thinking about other things and just thinking, well, you know, if it, I guess it means that you can feel relaxed in each situation because you know that your bigger picture is different again anyway. It's not just about being in that room at that time. While that is important in itself. Yeah, but in saying that, there still is that like, you know, for instance, even on this song, like the choruses, I mean, actually that's to say that the whole song, like you can have that feeling of like, um, you can be quite relaxed because you know you can always do anything in post, but ideally because of all the other stuff we do in post, we do kind of want the beds to be feeling as best as possible and try not to edit them as much, mm. you know? So like that is the challenge at that moment going like, okay, let's do this chorus. Fuck, it's still not feeling right. Like how do you just get really good in an hour, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. So you have to just, <laughs> right. it's a tricky balance. Cause yeah. you always have the option, you know, with that kernel producing to like get in there and, and mess around with what you did, but you, it's not ideal, you know, and it's not about really getting it perfect. It's just like you're trying to Capturing. get like a version of a thing that has a heap of vibe that you yes, don't have to exactly. mess with. And it's not about it being feeling like it's always like some perfectly quantized thing, but is it real cool, you know? And like, it's always really cool when you do get a kind of raw take that is just magic, but whether or not it's sort of just all played live or whether it's totally multi-tracked isn't really it's not really the deciding factor of whether it has vibe or not because mm. it could go either way, you know, mm. a totally live thing could have no vibe or a totally multi-track thing could have heaps of vibe and vice versa. Oh, yeah. It just really there's, there's depends always... if it's got your focus and if you get really getting the magical stuff there yeah. in the right places and the right mm. sound and all that. Yeah, it's great that you've got all these options that you've created for yourselves you know, to be able to capture all, all of your ideas. Before we move on from... All the words we don't say. What else do we need to hear? Do you need to share with us in detail? Uh, I reckon the guitar sounds one oh, of yeah, my favorite guitar sounds. Yeah, yeah. I quite, especially at the end. Oh, at the end, yeah. There's some cool stuff in the mm. outro, especially all the this squeaky the stuff. Squeaky chicken guy. Yeah, it's the whammy bar. Yeah, so he had borrowed this Gibson SG with a whammy bar, and the whammy bar is real squeaky. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> so yeah, we, we had a mic and she was in a separate room, like a little little ISO booth looking through the window playing the guitar and we actually had a condenser mic. It was either ribbon or a condenser mic on, you know, on the body of the guitar, pointing at the guitar. So we got all that natural. So you can hear that squeakiness yeah. coming through in the track. They played really great stuff on this, and I'm really happy with the dimension of the guitar. But like we've got a really cool 3D guitar sound and heaps of that kind of acoustic texture, and not a particularly acoustic guitar. Mm. And unfortunately, that wasn't a real Mellotron. It was the Mellotron flute sound from the core Kronos. But the feature that it did have was it, it can pitch bend down an octave, which is how I kind of approached that outro is just... Which I think, yeah, that was like... That's how we did it live. This all came from live. live. Yeah, this is all... From so this is an outro for the song that we probably put together for a live show sometime. 
and because you can slow it down, it's like, I mean, we often try, have tried to do those kind of like, before I had electronics on any of my drums, we used to do things with the band where we would do side chaining, but you know, natural side chaining. So like impersonate it basically. Yeah. yeah like so I mean, when I hit the kick drum, those guys stop. That's like, yeah, we have volume pedals where we can suck out. Yeah. And then right. really work on that, that effect. Yeah. It's interesting. It cause seamless. it's like, even on this song, it's like for Bender and someone to play the two separate thing for everyone else. It's like, that's one instrument. That's just literally the technicality of doing it is a fun thing to do. <laughs> so yeah. they're like, you know, like you, you chuck that on there, but to the listener, it's just a sound, you know, it's just like a riff that's going on and no one would ever know that it was done, you know, alternating. So yeah, it's kind of interesting. Totally. Um, mm. Let's just hear the last part of all the words we don't say and then we'll, we'll move on to our next song. Mm-hmm. Okay. some live hiatus there (laughs) constantly creating (laughs) so that's all the words we don't say we're going to look at get sun in just a moment So the next song we're going to look at is Get Sun. So it'd be brilliant to hear the master and then we'll work out how you did this. from Mood Valiant and this took you around the world in a way Mm -hmm. you could say because I know that some of it was recorded in Brazil so what was the story did you record a lot of the song first and then go to Brazil yeah we basically had a you know quite pretty established version that you know we'd recorded the beds for it in Byron Bay and then we'd worked on it added a bunch of stuff and um, yeah and it was pretty far along and it just yeah, we we just had discussions about some other element. We 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 had ideas for there being some parts with some strings and horns and things, and we had a big nod to Brazilian music in how we played it and arranged it. And Arthur Verica's name came up, and you know, now was like we should we should definitely reach out to him, and um, ended up reaching out to him, and he was down. And so yeah, we uh, our management booked a very last minute tour through some different spots in South America to pay for us to get over there and I'm really it was very good that we went because you know it was it was a bit on the fence it was like you know couldn't really afford it yeah it was like we could just send the thing to him and then we just get sent back all the files and everything but 
really glad we went because, you know, A, we met him and B, a bunch of other magical stuff happened in the studio and on the road and it was an amazing trip. And it really, mm. yeah, we got like so much gold for the record in general just through the fact that we went there. Definitely. Yeah. Because yeah. Nay stayed on and went into the Amazon and had her experience and recorded a bunch of voice memos that appear on the album, which is awesome. And I bought a bunch of percussion. I stayed on in Bahia, in Salvador, and bought a bunch of percussion instruments back. Mm-hmm. And they're all over this record too, some yep. of those some of those instruments. So yep. yeah, it kind of has a really nice Brazilian touch to the whole record. So that trip definitely was like the icing on the cake, kind of gave us the final push to the end, especially yep. with Arthur's stuff. I mean, like we were all just... Yeah, blown away, blown away by that whole yeah, experience. That, that whole studio experience was yeah. one of the best. And basically, you know, life, we I think. we went in and um, after experiencing the all the horns and the strings going down on top of the thing that we made, we were so inspired. It was like, can we book the studio for the rest of the night? And we could, and then I ended up writing and recording Red Room and um, getting the the piano and vocals down for Stone and Lavender, which had been. Nain sign had been workshopping for a little while and that was just kind of ready to go and everyone was just vibing. So it was mm. just like, let's just do stuff. So yeah, we've got a whole other two tracks for the record down there and it was just generally an excellent experience all around. Mm. Yeah, that's so fantastic. I thought it'd be great if we could hear the track as it was when you took it to Brazil. Yeah, sure. And then we can explore what Arthur did. Perrin's favourite part of the song, the intro. Oh, is there any other thing in? Oh, yeah, that makes it not bad. And this is without Vox as well. I think there's maybe, is there like maybe a guide vocal on this version? Oh, yeah, true. Yeah, I don't think this is in the, uh, not in the final vocal, just a little guide vocal that I think was recorded in Spiron. So this is what you had, and then in your mind, you had the thought of having some kind of string parts, having some kind of horn parts. And before yeah. you went to Brazil, had you already sent Arthur the song so he had time to prepare it? Oh, yes. yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he, um, he wrote back to us and he said, I'm... What did uh, he say exactly? It was like a like... week before we left. We got this email back from him after he'd been sent this recording and sat with it for a while and he sent back this cryptic email that said, Hi, guys. I'm having quite a bit of problems uh, trying to figure out uh, what to arrange for this. All the best, Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> it was so open-ended. It was like, does that mean he's, like, not doing it? <laughs> like, it's just filling us with this sense of absolute dread. Like, we're about to get in a plane. He's just not, like, it's not happening. Or, And, you know, we really just wanted him to do his thing, and we had no idea what he'd written. We had there was no, no idea what he was going to do. In there the was no, we're like, sort of trust, demo so trust, thing. Yeah. There was no, like, kind of, like, MIDI string version. It was like... It was just, what's it going to be? We had no idea. And then... Yeah. As soon as they started recording, we were all just screaming in the control room. It was hilarious. Everyone was just losing their shit because it just sounded so good. And like the studio that we were in was like a classic studio. It had been operating since the 50s. And it it was like, you know, you just know that a lot of Bossa and early Samba records were done there. Like the piano that I played on 
was a Steinway that had been there since the beginning. It was like a 70-year-old Steinway, and you just you could wow. just feel that it had been played so much, and there was so much history in that space. Mm. And the engineer was a beautiful guy. It was just an incredible vibe, and the quality of the, the musicianship that came in it was incredible. Yeah, it was a really great experience. And Arthur was a beautiful, beautiful character. There was a definite language barrier, but he was. we still were able to convey how much we appreciated him being on this yeah, yeah, we should. I mean, uh, if people aren't aware of Arthur Verakai, a um, really interesting um, Brazilian composer and musician and songwriter, but with a, an intriguing story where he released one album in the early 1970s and it wasn't yeah. a hit. So he re- kind of almost rejected it and thought, well, mm. no, that's that, but continued to work in music, arranging for other people and for other kinds of things like soundtracks. He actually said something very intriguing about that, actually, when we were chatting with him just like in between recording some things he said this thing is like how he he never really wanted to be in front of the music he wanted to be behind the music you know what i mean he didn't Mm. want to like be a big kind of pop star like i'm the guy that everyone looks at i think he just really loves writing and arranging but yeah he definitely seemed very appreciative that you know he'd had the the resurgence of interest in in what he's been doing over the last you know, years that that's he's kind of come back into people's consciousness. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So it's almost as if, in a way, he was quite happy for it not to be a hit, so that he can carry on making and arranging and playing music, but without the pressure mm. of of becoming a a star. But at the same time, that's kind of what he became because this album was rediscovered, and suddenly he's back in the spotlight again. And then suddenly we're all finding out about him, and then you get to work with him, and so you walk in the mm. studio with him. You you don't even know whether he's got these string and horn parts arranged because he'd sent this email saying... Well, we knew there was charts, but it's funny because when we got to the studio and then he turned up and then he had an assistant with him, he was like, oh, like Arthur left the charts at home, so someone's going to get the charts. So it was all, it was all just like... I think his daughter brought them in a taxi. Yeah, yeah. So we were sort of at the <laughs> studio hanging out with him and he's like, you know, Tweed Jack are just like waiting for the charts to turn up. Like, <laughs> it's like, oh my God, this is... So there's a lot of anticipation. And then the thing he ended up writing was not really like the thing that any of us thought he was going to write, but then it ended up just being so awesome. I didn't know what he was going to write. I just knew it was going to be good. I, we, we, <laughs> we gave very, very vague in, vague instructions. It was like maybe a bunch of stuff here, and then that's the part of the song that he didn't put any strings and horns, and he I put them kind of in all the other places, which I think was, genius. I don't know if that was a communication genius, breakdown man. or if he just was like, nah, you, you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But, I, want to think, I want to think that he just did that. Either way, <laughs> it, it worked out great. Yeah, it was good. And so the first time you heard these parts was when the musicians performed them and were mm-hmm. recorded for mm-hmm. the song. Yeah. So yeah. maybe we could, uh, can we hear these either isolated yeah, or... Yeah, absolutely. Or, we can hear the those strings? parts. Oh. Yeah, so you the got, first... you got to hear them isolated. The, I think the so first good. thing was the, well, the first thing was the horns <laughs> um, that went down because I kind of did the horns That's first right. in the room. Like I think it was like a six yeah. piece, seven piece, I think, horn section. Yeah. So this is the first thing we heard was... It took the engineer about half an hour to get all these sounds in a good space as well. Yeah, it all happened very quickly. It was was insane. And the guys, I think it was two tracks and then they're out of there. Two attempts, it was crazy. Wow, so presumably all the hairs on the back of your necks are all standing up at this point, hearing this for the first time. 
Yeah, yeah man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty mind blowing. And like, there was such a good section. They were really. And the strings. Outrageous. Oh my god, when the so, strings yeah. came in, there was just magic, man. So we were already flipping out because we experienced the whole horn take, and then this happened, and we we're like, oh my god. <laughs> like, I was like, I was like, kind of not. Someone has turned my emotions up to like just this over its maximum threshold. So good. Yeah. Like, I think he had about eight channels of 1173, 10, 1073 Neve channel strips just mm. sitting next to the massive desk that they had, which they didn't even use, and then a bunch of vintage Norman mics in the room, and that was it, and that was the sound. And how big was the string section? What was the string section? It was about, not eight, it was about 12 players or something like that. I think it might have been 12 or even 10, like 4-2-2 kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah, and then they, I think both of the sections, it was like, uh, you kind of arranged it so there was two, like they're both, they get a take and then they double track with slightly different parts the second time around. So it's like a double tracked of each of them. You did but they're just like the super tight. Oh, so tight. And it was a great collection yeah. of microphones that they used to record it too. There was a bunch of different room options, close mics. Yeah, it was just the whole thing. Like, everything was like, everyone was very comfortable being in that studio, just um, yeah. doing the thing at a high level very quickly. And that's why we were able to use the studio after they were finished because they just it's too quick we couldn't believe it it was so they were done and it was like six o'clock or something and yeah. we were like oh my god okay yeah. can we just stay here yeah it was just like wow space? Where, where in Brazil is this then in, in Rio this was in Rio yeah. Right. yeah I can't remember the name off the top of my head something Technica uh, it was funny because it's actually just in like a like the entrance is just in a weird little strip mall like a little arcade mall, I mean, yeah, like, you know, so you kind of walk in and there's like a little hairdresser's little like knickknack place and then there's this other door and then you just go in there and there's this like big studio with like two control rooms and a few different live spaces just hidden in this very unlikely little pocket. But yeah, pretty um, amazing space. Yeah. And so that was the first time you meet Arthur as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there is a, a language barrier in that, you know, you speak English, he speaks Portuguese. Mm. And, and uh, how old is Arthur now? Uh, he's in his 70s, I guess mid-70s. Spoke a bit of English and he was lovely. He was very, like, it was really cool. Like, really warm and really kind of funny and a real kind of cheeky demeanour. And then, like, the dudes came in to record and he stepped into the room and his whole sort of vibe changed. Like, now it's time to do the thing and everyone's just like... Yeah. yeah, so I'm following you, maestro, you know, <laughs> went into boss mode. What yeah. an amazing uh, experience. So let's just reprise the end of it, and then we'll ask you the two repeat questions we'd like to ask everybody who comes on Take Notes. Yeah, if you hear that, like, the original of this outro, like, was very, very bare, um, and then once we got the strings on it and it took it back here... Um, this, the whole outro kind of just wanted to try and take it into a, a different space and a lot of the um, instruments that I brought back from Brazil, not so much this part, it's just like at the very outro, it just kind of gets into this different world where a lot of this stuff... Those birds are from the Amazon, off Ney's iPhone. Wow. Guica, which is that.
some uh, there's some hung drum. Yeah, there's hung drum. There's a lot of different stuff in this outro. But yeah, I forgot about the, that voice memo in the background. You can hear the Portuguese and the and the birds. That's um, yeah, one of Nate's experiences in the Amazon, and we kind of bled that in there. Um, and then Simon had this outro or this synth thing that was completely unattached to this song. Yeah, we just kind of dropped it in. Just and it plopped. It I in think there it was. It wasn't of, it just sort of accidentally there or something somehow? No, or was it I intentional? No, it was intentional. It was the thing that we recorded. That me, me, and you were playing around with on the on the monopoly. And, yeah, that yeah. And it, put it in the back. And it, just, it, in the it was one of those studio moments where it was like, oh my god, hit record. That sounds incredible. Yeah. And we did a whole bunch of different stuff utilizing that. Mm. I think I remember the thing so, with that was that it was one of those things where I think it. It was like a really cool specific thing and then as soon as we just sort of dropped it in sort of arbitrarily into the session, wherever we dropped it was just like kind of hit straight away. It was like, oh, wow, that's like... And then me and Perrin's been ages trying to find if it was a good spot or not. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I, just, I just remember just chucking it in there and it seemed to work with the hung drum and it yeah. just kept it in there. It's like, mm, oh, mm. that's actually a fucking sweet vibe. But yeah, that's like a good example of like just throwing things all on anytime there's like an instrumental section you can kind of you can get very atmospheric and um bring in a whole bunch of different instruments that we do have and record them in weird ways and use there's a low tape on that rewound and reversed and things like this real subtle stuff that really helps that last section kind of come into its own little um, world and um we do that a lot with like in between like just like eight bars of a song with all our music, it's like, this is an instrumental part, what do we want it to feel like? And then just go pretty wild and experimenting, for sure. We've like definitely done a lot of intros and to a song called Kenobi Jar that it's not released yet, but I remember <laughs> even here and at the back and at another studio, Bender trying to do the same idea like three times over. <laughs> like It's <laughs> like, I've got a new idea. And it's like, what is it? Oh, I'm like, how about we get a bow and bow some bells or some cymbals or something? And I'm like... Yeah, that sounds great. Let's do that. <laughs> it's always like, a good time. And then we don't realize we've got like three of the same <laughs> idea from different studios. <laughs> <laughs> Every version sounds kind of different. It does. And yeah. you chuck them all together and it's like, oh, there yeah. you go. Yeah. It's like, nothing's wasted. Nothing's wasted. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I mean, it, it definitely getting the idea that, you know, it's constant exploration mm. with hiatus coyote. You're constantly exploring and, you know, having ideas, but, you know, immediately acting on them and trying to capture them while, while they're mm. fresh. And and I love the way that with the end of Get Sun, you know, you capture the full Brazilian experience. So Nay's iPhone recordings in the Amazon, the percussion that you mm. stumbled mm-hmm. across and bought while you're out there. Mm. Yeah. And then obviously the amazing work of Arthur Verakai. Mm-hmm. Um, before you run off, we have a mm. couple of questions that we like to ask people. One is a tech question and whether there's any essential piece of kit that you cannot live without. Mm. Um, you mentioned the Korg earlier on that seems to be on True. all hiatus coyote recordings but is there anything else that you know as individuals or as a group always a space echo the you know 201 301 501 555 all the all the, the whole space echo Roland space echo series mm. are just like pretty invaluable it, yeah tool. always always just like mainstay you know yeah it's that. got everything <laughs> i'd say for me is that i don't you probably can't see it i don't actually use it anymore i've got this old it's like a pa mixer called a carbon um I got that just around choose your weapon time, maybe a bit afterwards. But that's definitely for me to be able to get some drum sounds that I've got is just being that bit of gear. And basically all it is is just gear with knobs on it. It's away from the computer. So for me, that was like 
a big eye opener just to be able to like really quickly pull down all the highs on a graphic EQ and it's like they're all gone, don't need to use a computer. So like in terms of what that represents, that was a, a useful bit of gear for sure. But yeah. I don't think anyone knows what that is actually. So I guess, <laughs> yeah, Space, space Echo, Korg. <laughs> I, think, I think for me, just thinking about synthesizers, I think the, the Roland JX3P is probably mm. the guy for me. It's always the one that I end up, if I'm trying to find something, I always return to that synth and it kind of does it. It's mm. just the incredibly warm, versatile sounding instrument. Mm. And the other question we ask people is about advice, whether you have experienced things in such a way that you've come to certain conclusions about how to operate as a band or as an individual, um, any advice that you would pass on to other musicians um, or maybe advice you've been given earlier on that you've always stood by? I think just keep experimenting because there's certain parts of your knowledge that become really clear. There's certain things that you'll do and be able to replicate again and again and become sort of just standard sort of parts of your knowledge that you always can use but there's always some other process that is going to do something unique you know what I mean there's always if you're stuck it's just like set some weird stuff and make some weird noises and then some you know you just eventually might find some unique one second perhaps of a really bizarre sound that just came out that just becomes your favorite thing you know just um always being afraid to experiment sorry never afraid to experiment <laughs> terrified of experimentation no just constantly mm. just um do what you can to keep it fresh really mm. yeah let's say um i think like a good piece of knowledge that would pass on to me when i was young i was like hanging in with my mom and some of her friends and they're pretty experienced percussion players some of them and um this one guy that I looked up to a lot I was playing like djembe just with all these adults and just trying to like just smash the shit out of it. Um, and he comes up to me and quietly and was like, you know, instead of playing so much, you should like listen to, <laughs> it's very simple, but listen to people around and, and react to them rather than um, trying to play your own thing, you know. So listen and react, I guess, would be a piece of advice that, um, that I live by all the time. You know, if I'm stuck for an idea, it's just listen to everyone else and then where do you fit in? in that space, you know, that's for a um, performative aspect, I guess, or improvising aspect. And I think for me as a drummer, like that's very important for drummers to have that openness and willingness to, yeah, definitely just listen and react. Yeah, that's great. It's been so good to speak to you. Thank you so much, Bender, Perrin, Simon. Really appreciate it. And uh, I know that you've got a curfew in Melbourne at the moment, so we've got to let you uh, oh, not break yeah. the curfew, but I thought maybe we should play out with Red Rooms, and this was one of the songs that emerged mm. in Brazil, you know, that you recorded yeah. there, and suddenly it's like, whoa, we've got this track. So Red Room was just created spontaneously, or were seeds of the idea already around? No, it was while... Uh, we. Sorry, Simon, Simon and Simon and Nay were recording takes of Stone or Lavender in the studio with a beautiful Steinway there. And um, I was like, cool, these guys are going to just do takes of that and they're going to be done soon. And then we're going to try to do some other stuff. So I just went with my bass into like the lobby of the of the studio and just um, came up with a riff and then came into the dudes and was just like, I got a thing. Can we just see if, what we can do with this? And um, it, everyone just sort of pulled it together really fast. And it just ended up being... It's a classic 
Benderif. Quick, mate. This is very bendery. <laughs> Deeply bendery. Here you go. And the d- 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 the sixteenth row on my leg. <laughs> <laughs> and the synth is a JX3P. That's so good. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have a moment, do tell your friends and leave us a review. It all really helps. Thanks to those of you who have already donated to the show. I'm just one part of the team that brings you tape notes. It relies on your support. If you'd like to donate, please head to our website. Once again, thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.